Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. My guest today is Dr. Nzinga Harrison, the host of a podcast I love in recovery. So wherever you listen to podcasts, you can search for those previous episodes. She's also the chief medical officer and co-founder of Eleanor Health and the co-founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. A true leader, Dr. Harrison is a shining example of how you can treat addiction from a place of love and care. She's a vocal advocate and activist, placing an emphasis on the healthcare system's responsibility to incorporate trauma-informed interventions aimed at addressing the harms of racism and marginalization faced by many communities in this country. As a physician with specialties in addiction medicine and psychiatry, who spent her career focusing on stigma reduction and health equity, Nzinga Harrison is uniquely positioned to help people navigate the stress of current events, including from the opioid crisis and COVID to racial violence and systematic injustice, and move from thinking to action 
with the goal of improving health in society. So welcome to the Hello Someday podcast. Thank you, Casey. That was so beautiful. So I definitely heard elements of like my standard bio you can find on the web, but you added in some beautiful things. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I told you that before we did this interview, I was diving into your website and the In Recovery podcast, as well as your interviews on previous podcasts. And I was so impressed by how approachable you were, how warm you are, and also just how you break things down into ideas that anyone can understand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important. We have so much stigma built up around mental health conditions, certainly around addictions and substance use, even before it becomes addiction, that it makes us feel like we can't talk about it. Or when we talk about difficult things like we being medical professionals, then one of the ways to keep it emotionally safe is to like talk about it in really big, erudite, academic terms, right? It like keeps space from the emotion. And so I just try to be super accessible and super warm to like get to whatever we can get to to help whoever's in front of me. Yeah. And the lack of judgment and just kind of keeping it real, I think helps so much because so many people struggle with their relationship with alcohol or drugs. And for me, it was with alcohol and it's not kind of the end of the world. Like it is super common. You are not the only one and it's often very solvable, right? Totally. 100%. So um, probably unknown statistic is that 75% of people with addiction, including um, alcohol use disorder, go on to recover. Like, isn't that a staggering number? Oh my God. Okay. Tell me what, because all anyone talks about is like the relapse rate, you know, in year one, in year two, in year three. So tell me where that comes from, because I actually hadn't heard that before. Yeah, this is, it's so important. And so the relapse rate is important. And I always, when I talk about alcohol use disorder, any other addiction, I always try to put it in the same structure as the other chronic medical conditions that we know about, high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, right? And so I cringe and like break into a sweat and then almost cuss at people when they're like, relapse is part of the disease. One, yes, that's true. Two, to deliver it that way is just mean. Like, don't you think, Casey? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, if I'm talking to a person with breast cancer, I'm not going to deliver them like relapse is imminent. Yeah. Or relapse is unavoidable because it's part of the disease. I am going to say, and I don't know these numbers for breast cancer, so I'm just making it up. I am going to say, in the first year, the risk of relapse is X percent. And this is what we do to minimize the chance that you land in that group that has a relapse of the breast cancer. Then at two years, it's lower. Then at three years, it's lower. Like whatever the story is for breast cancer, this is how we have to tell. And then what you actually hear with breast cancer, and I don't know this number, it's like, and 80% of people get in remission and stay in remission. So then you anchor hope to remission, right? Like you don't hang your expectations on relapse like we do for substance use disorders. And so the statistic was 
recently released like in an article it comes out of NIH it comes out of NIAAA it's a combination of sources but 75% of people with substance use disorder recover and so we do know right like the risk of relapse in the first year is higher okay so and a lot of that has not to do with the illness itself but so much like how broken the system is that people have to try to get help in yeah we could have those relapse rates so much lower if our system actually wrapped around people in a holistic compassionate longitudinal way the way we do for other illnesses but so what i say to folks is like listen okay if we can get to the first year risk of relapse falls substantially. This is how we get to the first year. Psychologically, we're looking for a depression, anxiety. Socially, we're looking for support system, coping skills. We got to go back to that childhood and find out anything that's affecting you today that we didn't realize was affecting you and try to get to that. We got to get your job stress down. We got to work on relationships, right? Like whatever other physical illnesses you have, we have to be managing those. Got to exercise and sleep and water. All of these things are what drive down the risk to increase the chance that we get to one year. And then at two years, even lower, three years, even lower. Like, how do we get you and your 75%? And then at five years, Casey, the risk of relapse falls to that of the general public that never had a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. Yes. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. Yes. Okay. First of all, I love that because I'm at six and a half years. And this is amazing. (laughs) But not only that, I mean, I know for me and I know I totally want to talk about which I love is the idea that you said equating to breast cancer, stage one, stage two, stage three, Mm -hmm. early Mm -hmm. intervention. But when I was trying to stop drinking and clearly was worried about my relationship with it, tried to moderate, didn't work, was having the gray out slash blackouts, hangovers, all the things, I didn't even consider it, quote unquote, relapse. I considered it like I'm trying to stop drinking Oh, and I only made it to day four, or I made it to day 30. And then I went back. But it wasn't like relapse. I just never really got sober momentum. Yeah, but you know, 
And so I, I appreciate that so much. And I think, you know, people are like, doctors try to make everything an illness. This like legitimately neurobiologically, psychologically, okay, like if anybody wants to fight, like meet me in the street, we can fight, right? So like legitimately we're dealing with a chronic illness. The problem is that the symptoms look like our personality, Mm. right? The symptoms are interpersonal. The symptoms are in our behaviors. The symptoms are in the choices we make. And so it can be really hard for people to understand that those are symptoms of your illness, not who you are. And so it gets to that narrative that you are having that was like, this isn't relapse, which in medicine, any recurrence of symptoms after a period of stability, that's the definition of relapse, right? So like you have diabetes, your blood sugar has been controlled, your blood sugar is out of control. That is a relapse of your diabetes. Got it. Not the person, the diabetes, right? You have uh, cancer. You're in remission, cancer recurs, that is a relapse of the cancer. And so like that narrative that you are having, like, I only made it two days, it's not a relapse, I didn't get sober momentum, is taking that on as you, as opposed to like, this is a recurrence of the symptoms. But you're right, we don't call it, like we we consider it active if it's within a month. So all of the attempts that you're making, same thing if I was controlling your blood pressure, If I can't get normal blood pressures for like a month, I can't say we made it to stability, right? And so that same kind of concept. And then we mark early remission at three months. And importantly here, for substance use disorder, we have diagnostic criteria. There are 11. And you have to meet three of them to meet diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder. So a person can still be drinking and be in remission from a substance use disorder. That does not work for everybody. That did not work for you, right? So for you, your illness severity was such that complete abstinence has to be the recovery pathway for you. There are different recovery pathways, but we look at those diagnostic criteria, and if you don't meet three for three months, that's when we call it early remission. And if symptoms recur, that's when the illness has relapsed, not the person, because I'm not the person, the illness. And then if we can get to one year of remission, that's when like risk of relapse starts to significantly fall. Will you tell me, like you said, it is absolutely a disease. Anyone who wants to debate me on this, happy to do it. Will you just in, I love how you break it down. So it's under so understandable. Tell me why. Um, one, I love how you like made my, you made my threat to your listening audience so sweet. You're like, if anyone <laughs> wants to challenge me, I was like, meet me in the street. We can fight. <laughs> like, if anyone wants to challenge me. Yes. So this is how I make my case for substance use disorders being chronic medical conditions. So first of all, every chronic medical condition we have has biological, psychological, social, also cultural, political inputs. Right. So biologically, you're born with your DNA. You have inherited things from your biological family that come in your DNA. When we look at high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, asthma, 
and we look at the genetic component of that illness, uh, your risk for developing that illness that is just due to your DNA, like born with it, it's 40 to 55%. When we look at addictions, it's 40 to 55%. When we look at relapse and remission rates for chronic medical conditions, again, asthma, diabetes, high blood pressure, and you look at the rate of relapse of that illness at one year after discharge from a hospital, so symptoms were significant enough that you had to go inpatient a year later, what percent have experienced a relapse of their illness? It hovers right 45 to 55%. Addiction, 45 to 55%. Literally performs exactly the same. We look neurobiologically, the chemicals um, in our brains and bodies that are involved in addiction, evolved in high blood pressure, involved in asthma, involved in diabetes. It's all the same chemicals, right? So like when it's all the same chemicals and it's all the same nerve system and it's all the same genetic component and it's all the same relapse rate, like if it's a duck, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And so when I, um, you know, like lay it out in the charts and you can see addiction, it actually is a little bit more what we call heritable. So a little bit more of your risk is coded in your DNA than for those other chronic conditions. And when I showed the relapse rates of those other conditions, I say like, you know, oh, I don't want to say this number wrong, but it's some devastatingly high number of Americans that don't believe addiction is treatable. Mm. Yeah, I should pull the statistic. It's like oh, over 80%. I don't want to say the number wrong because I don't have it in my head. Like devastatingly high. Even though 75% of people will recover from. Okay, talk to me, Casey. <laughs> right. And then also like, do you think asthma is not treatable? Yeah. Because the relapse rate is the same. Yeah. Or do you think cancer is not treatable? Or do you think diabetes is not treatable? Right. And so it's just because we have this stigma and this really just errant, wrong concept that starts with not understanding addiction as a chronic medical condition. And so what about, I mean, I'm just, of course, thinking of myself because that was my thing. Like no one in my family drank like I did, right? And I know you know, you said 45 to, to 50 or 60% is hereditary. I started drinking heavily in college. I was on the women's rugby team, which is like a, you know, crash course in binge drinking. All my friends drank and I had underlying anxiety and post quitting drinking undiagnosed mood disorder. Is that like, not everyone has parents or siblings or grandparents who drink a ton like I do. 100%. So 40 to 60% coded in your DNA specifically for that alcohol use disorder. Okay. So not for anything else. 60, 60 to 40% then environmental life experiences, right? That That is equal. 40 to 60 and 60 okay. to 40 is equal. Now, what put you on unequal footing? I bet if you look back in your family, you can see that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You can see that mood disorder. Yes. Right. And so I describe it like if you have a room full of people and you have 
a group of people who just like only drink occasionally, special occasions. You have people who drink more regularly. You have people who drink regularly heavily. And then like at the front of that room is a line that's like, this is the line from heavy regular drinking. And then you cross over that line to alcohol use disorder. It's not that simple, but this is yeah. the, this is the visual. People who only drink occasionally don't have depression, don't have anxiety, don't experience trauma growing up, don't have instability, have, you know, parents that can help teach them healthy coping skills, like all of the things. Yeah. They may not even be walking towards the line or if they're walking, they're walking like super slow Sunday stroll. They're probably never <laughs> going to get to the crossover line. Yeah. People with a family history of anxiety are walking faster. Yeah. People with a family history of anxiety and alcohol use disorder are walking even faster. Anxiety and mood disorder and alcohol disorder even faster. Anxiety, mood disorder, alcohol use disorder, and then add childhood trauma. Yeah. And then add racism and discrimination, LGBTQ, and then add growing up in poverty, walking even faster to that line. Right. And so the interplay between that 40 to 60% biological inherited and that 60 to 40% environmental is extremely important. Okay. That makes complete and total sense to me because women will say to me all the time, but you know, no one in my family drinks the way I do in XYZ. And you know, it, there is like this question of like, is it, you know, in terms of things that people believe that are not necessarily true? One, it's not that you just don't have willpower or motivation or self-discipline or whatever. And it's also not that like you must have had, you know, a family history that you don't know about or something like that. It's all the things. Again, it's all the things. And yes, you're so important because people um, receive that as a narrative, like, and so I must just be making bad choices, which is like another underlying narrative on alcohol use disorders and other addictions, which no, like, okay, think of the friend you had who was the first person in her family to get diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. She was by, and biological predisposition can come from your DNA. There's also acquired biological predisposition, right? So like we're having, we're experiencing things biologically in life that are going into our bodies and changing things. And so it's like, is it her fault she has breast cancer? It must be her fault because nobody else in her family had it. So, right? Yeah, when nobody thinks that. that way, nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that. And it's because we don't have any question about whether breast cancer is an illness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always think about the support that you get, rightly so, when you have an illness like breast cancer, but, you know, you post on Facebook, you put pictures of you during your chemo treatments, you do the walks, you um, have people delivering meal trains, you have a blog to up people, update people on your progress, and you're dealing with substance use, and everybody blames you and is like, oh my God, why'd you even do this, you know? Totally. I always say like, 
I dream of the day where the reflexes to the level of compassion and support that we have for breast cancer, for people to be able to come out and say, I have addiction. It is easier these days to come out and say, I'm in recovery. I haven't had a drink in six and a half years. And still some people will be like, oh, wow, I never, I would have never thought of you. Right. Like that, that, that thought will still come to people, but it's at least it's like, you can get positive reinforcement. Oh my God, congratulations. And amazing. And this, all of the things that should be, but when the day when a person can stand up and say right now, today, I am actively dealing with active alcohol use disorder. I'm struggling and the troops will rally and the compassion will come and the support will come and you automatically like you get diagnosed with breast cancer. The infrastructure is already there. Yes. Like I long for this day for people with addictive disorders. Yeah. And you have mandatory screening. We were talking about this. Like you turn 40 years old, you go into your mammogram because that's a medical cutoff, right? And I'll take it one step, one step even further, Casey. You have a family history of breast cancer. Your mammograms start 10 years before the youngest person develop theirs. Wow. And not only that, you go into just your annual checkup and, you know, you put your arm up and they check you out and whatever. They tell you to do it in your shower, right? 100%. So, like, why are we not taking this same strategy for a condition that we know is way more common? Yes. Certainly is devastating, right? And the answer is stigma. The answer is we don't get trained to do it. In medical school, the answer is no licensing or accrediting or standard of care body has told us that this is the standard of care. It should be. It should be. Yeah. Well, so I want to talk about all the things, but you mentioned, I know I could talk to you for hours because I'm like learning so much, but you mentioned the lack of training. And I've heard you say that it was, you could go through medical school or your rotations without getting any training full stop in addiction medicine or addiction? 100%. So to date myself, I've been practicing medicine. I graduated medical school 2002. So I'm 20 years in, right? Um, And a lot has changed for the better, for sure. But like there is legislation trying to make it through Congress right now to mandate addiction training as one of the core skill sets you have to to develop before you leave medical school, that it is in progress, like lets you know that standard has not been set. I did not know that that was even in progress. I just heard, gosh, a week or two ago that universal screening is now recommended for anxiety. So, so slow. Like, doesn't it seem like that would just already be in place. But like, yeah, we need um, universal screening for anxiety. We need universal screening for depression. These are super common. We need universal screening for addiction. And, and, And part of that is like, can we not wait until we're stage four? Right? Can we even, can we not wait until we're stage one? Can we screen and be practicing, it's similar like pediatricians, right? Like you take your baby to the pedi- pediatrician, two, four, six, I don't know the intervals, nine, yeah. 12, 
every year after that, whatever it is, because pediatricians are looking in anticipation, like this is what I expect to be happening right now. If it's not happening, what is my earliest opportunity to intervene so that we can set this kid up for the best outcomes possible? Can we take that same mindset knowing more than 21 million Americans in any given year are going to meet diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder? Can it just be whenever you go to the doctor, like two questions? We have a PHQ-2 that screens for depression. Two questions. Mm -hmm. We have a GAD-2 that screens for anxiety. Two questions. You've heard me talk about the cage, which screens for substance use disorders. Four questions. We have a TICS. The TICS is only two questions. Like if I can't even get four questions, just like let me get two, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. So what is CAGE? What is your assessment? Yeah, yeah. So CAGE is a research-based validated screening tool. And it's four questions. And everybody who's listening, I always tell people, if you ask, if you think to yourself, is my blank a problem? Like, I wonder, is my drinking a problem? I wonder, am I using these pain pills and it's a problem? I wonder, like, am I, this Xanax, right? Like, if you ask yourself, the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. The answer is yes. Now, the answer is not that you have a severe substance use disorder and you need to go to a 30-day rehab. That doesn't mean that's the answer. But the answer at the very least is that you are at risk for developing a substance use disorder. You have, I'm going to talk about this concept of pre-addiction, or you have mild, moderate, or severe, right? So like the moment you get any inkling or the moment anybody in your life gets any inkling, the answer is yes. Okay, so starting with the answer is yes. Here's a screener. CAGE is an acronym. Four questions. C, have you ever thought to yourself, Maybe I should cut back on whatever it is. A, have you ever been annoyed when somebody else mentioned your use pattern to you? G, have you ever felt guilty about the way you were using whatever that is? 
And E, the cage was initially developed only for alcohol, and now it's been adapted to include all drugs. And so the E was for eye opener. Like, are you waking up in the morning? You have to take a drink first thing in the morning to steady your nerves. I use the E as eye opener. It's like you have to smoke a cigarette to get your day started. You have to have a drink or you're already thinking about it. Even if you didn't have the drink, you're already thinking about when I get off work. I'm going to have that glass of wine, right? Or I'm going to smoke that cigarette or I'm going to take that anxiety pill. And so C-A-G-E, have you ever thought you should cut back? You ever been annoyed because people need to get out of my business? <laughs> have you ever felt guilty because you said you were only going to drink half the bottle? You drank the whole bottle. You have to, you know, you're thinking about it first thing when you wake up. One yes to any of these four questions. 77% of the time that person has a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. It's mild, moderate, or severe. could be anywhere on this on the spectrum, but 77% of the time. The other 23% of the time, you've got toes over the line. Mm-hmm. You didn't jump over the line, yeah. but your risk is there. And so it's an opportunity. This is what I tell people. We're so afraid for somebody to say, you have a problem with alcohol or you have a problem with other drugs. We're so afraid of it, but it is such an amazing opportunity to intervene before your stage four metastatic. Yeah. And I don't know almost any woman who can't check off, you know, two or four of those. Like, have you ever thought you should cut back? I mean, I was thinking about that I needed to cut back like when I was 22, you know, See? and I drank till I was 40. Um, but it wasn't safe. Was it safe for you to say out loud to anybody in that environment you were in? I think I might need to cut back. No. And I desperately didn't want to. I desperately didn't want to. I'm like, hell no, I don't want to cut back, you know, be, or I, God knows, didn't want to stop drinking completely because I felt right. like it was like, I would never date. I would never have fun. I would be othered. Yeah, this is what I said. Every illness has psychosocial, cultural, political factors. Yeah. And those were your psychosocial factors. And this is what a lot, like we have to make it safe. We have to make sober dating cool. Yes. You know what I mean? We have to make sober rugby the bomb. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like we have to, we have to, if we really, people say like, how do we stop this addiction crisis? Well, and I feel like that's changing. I mean, if you look at sober Instagram or sober TikTok or, I mean, it is, or like Drew Barrymore and Kelly Ripa coming out or, you know, everyone coming out and saying, I've, I'm stopping drinking like Chrissy Teigen. I mean, it's not all about celebrities, but it's about people being honest about the fact that like, Yikes, I was drinking every night and I decided it wasn't working for me, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's so important. And celebrities are huge. Listen, we, you know, we take a lot in from the media that we consume, but it's also just as important for you to say it to your girlfriends at dinner on Friday night. You know what I mean? Um, the people around us like just like making it safe. Yes. I was it was so cool. I was in New York. Um, it's now probably two weeks ago for a business dinner. And so they were like, all right, everybody ordering drinks at this business dinner. And so a few people ordered drinks. I ordered a drink, which I usually don't even order a drink, but I was like, whatever. I ordered a drink. 
And then the person next to me ordered a mocktail. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so the person next to them ordered a drink, but then the person next to them was like, you know what? I'm into this mocktail thing. Like, tell me about the mocktails. And then it ended up more than a quarter of the group ordered mocktails. Now, I have no idea. Are people in recovery? This, that, blah, blah, blah. I have no idea. The point was just like, that was such a beautiful, like, butterfly effect moment. If that one person hadn't had the agency to order a mocktail, maybe those other three people would have been drinking alcohol that night. And I feel like when I finally did start talking to people, like I remember I was like four months sober and there was this woman who I wanted to be friends with, you know, neighborhood, kid the same age as mine. She worked, I worked, you know, whatever. And she invited me to come to a book club. She's like, you're going to love these women. They're amazing. We read, we drink a lot of wine. And I was like, oh, like deer in the headlights. Cause I was like, oh my God, if I tell her I don't drink, she's going to not want to be friends with me or whatever. And so I was like debating with my husband, the 17 things I could say. I was like, do I tell her I'm not good at book clubs? Do I tell her like I have a running club? You know, I didn't even know what dates it was. And he mm-hmm. was like, you don't drink. Tell her you don't drink. And I was like, you okay, like, that wow, is you're like, this sounds so easy. I know. <laughs> and, and it so is finally, not. Finally, I was like, hey, that sounds great. I'd love to hang out. I actually stopped drinking like four months ago. It just, you know, I feel better without it. So, you know, whatever. And she actually, I said, it gives me anxiety. And then she said, oh, I totally get that. Actually, I have to keep a close eye on my drinking. I've taken breaks. And like after that, I felt so much closer to her. I did not join Mm -hmm. the book club, but we hung out. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because we think of, um, it's, you know, we try to think of those things that are like universal human experiences mm-hmm. and struggling with some behavior is a universal human experience. And so when I talk another way that, you know, when I'm teaching about addiction or supporting someone, like trying to call out the stigma, that's so much of, of what my work is. It's just like, don't point this at yourself, point that at the illness, don't point mm-hmm. this at yourself, point this at the illness. I'm like, you know, for a person who has never experienced any difficulty with a substance, just think of one behavior you've tried to change in your life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like it'll be around food, it'll be around diet, it'll be around exercise, it'll be around not working as much. I'm, honestly, because all of these run through the dopamine pathway, which is the same pathway that uh, addictions run through, right? So like, that's why it's a universal human experience. And I'm like, think about, how hard it was to quote stay on the wagon yes of exercising or quote stay on the wagon of eating or quote stay on the wagon of not working 14 hours a day and then add all of the biochemical neurobiological aspects of a substance that make it even harder and people are like oh man yeah i get it totally That makes so much sense. Well, you said that the, you know, it's working its way through the legislation to add this screening. How important do you think it is like lobbying and big alcohol and money in terms of slowing that down? Because they don't want you to screen for 
medical, you know. I mean, you know, I think about it like in Vegas, you see all the big casinos have all around, like if you're having trouble with gambling, it's like on every slot machine. Yeah. If you're having trouble with gambling, here's the state sponsored line. Just give us a call. We'll help you out. So like. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. I'm sure casinos didn't want to put that on their machines, but it is a public health imperative to choose the health of our public over the profits of our corporations. And America does not always do a good job with this, okay? And I don't know if it's just America. This is this is the experience. Yeah. Like this is the world experience where I have enough to make a comment on it. I'm sure it's in other parts of the world also. Mm-hmm. And so it's up to us to raise our voices to the people who are representing us. Yeah. To drive to drive that. And then I mean, I'm not like all anti-corporation either. There are plenty of companies with mission and heart and soul that don't want people to have to die to enjoy their products. And so I think there's, there's a way we can, you know, yeah, we can all benefit. Well, I just saw like last month that doctors are recommending that um, cancer health warnings go on the back of alcohol, not just don't drink and drive and don't drink while pregnant. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they think cigarettes, they think cancer. You know what? Public health education campaigns did that because that was absolutely 100% not the case when I was growing up. Oh, yeah, me neither. Totally underappreciate alcohol's contribution to risk for cancer. 
Like they might think liver cancer, liver disease, but like, no, all cancers, all cause breast cancer included yeah. significantly increased by. Well, I, I read that 70% of Americans don't know the risk between alcohol yeah. and cancer. Totally. And if the, and the 30% that do know the risk, I'm just going to slap my, you know, all my coins on red and say, I bet the majority of them conjure up heavy drinkings risk associated with cancer. Not what we would consider regular routine, not concerning drinking, regular routine, not concerning drinking increases your risk for developing cancer. Well, and why wouldn't they? Because the American Cancer Society just changed their guidelines, right, a year ago to say no amount of alcohol is, is, you know, okay for cancer risk. Before a year ago, it was one drink a day for women, two for men. 14 drinks a week, Casey. Yeah, and they're talking five-ounce glasses of wine. Like, I did the, like... And you already know, exactly... Exactly. Exactly. Like even when um these white claws came out, uh, then my husband was drinking like a white claw every day. Like suddenly I just see like white claws, white claws, white claws. And I was like, oh, he has no idea that that white claw has the same alcohol content as a can of beer. And I was like, you know, that white claw has the same alcohol content as a can of beer. He was like, what? I was like, yeah. And then, and then he like stopped buying white claws and drinking them every day because he was like, I would not drink a can of beer every day. Right. But it's like, when you don't know, you don't know white claw, you know, white claw is delicious. It's cool. I'm at a party. It's refreshing. We love sparkling water. It was like sparkling water with a little extra fun. Stock the house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell me, what do you, I know a huge part of what you do is um, minimizing the stigma around it, bringing, you know, medical facts, bringing stuff out into the open. We've talked a lot about it, but if, if someone's listening to this and they are, you know, answering yes to two or three or one of those cage questions, what do you want them to take away if they're like two or three things from our conversation? Yeah. So number one is act now. So if you take that cage and you answer yes to even one of those questions, I want you to treat that the same way you would treat finding a lump in your breast. Mm, Wow. You would go somewhere. Right. And you may get there and the gynecologist may say, oh, this is fibroadenoma, nothing to worry about. But you would go and get an opinion. And so that's what I want you to do is go get an opinion where you can get that. You can go to your primary care doctor. You can go, if you're in a religious spiritual institution, you can go to a religious leader. If you have a friend you trust and you want to bounce it off of them first, you can go to a friend you trust. There are so many online um, resources now, right? Like reach out to at least one person and just rip off the bandaid and say, I'm concerned. I might need to be concerned. You don't even have to be concerned. Yeah. Just concerned. I might need to be concerned. It's plenty, right? So like treat it like you would treat finding a lump in your breast. And that's not just act now. Talk to somebody, get help, get evaluated. That's number one. 
The second part of that is treat yourself the same way you would treat yourself if you found a lump in your breast. You would not start going down a whole list of reasons why you're terrible, why your decisions are bad, how you did this to yourself, how you have to hide it. For the most part, you wouldn't, right? And so even though that will probably be part of the reflex just because of the stigma we all get trained into, I want you to actively fight that reflex. Mm -hmm. Actively fight that reflex and say to yourself, I'm concerned I may have an illness. I need to get evaluated for the illness. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned I may have an illness. I need to get evaluated for the illness, right? Just like undermine kind of that self-inflicted stigma. And then um, number three, same thing, mental health conditions, rolling packs. Substance use disorders are mental health conditions. I already threatened to fight your audience once today, so I won't threaten to fight them again. But if yeah. anybody wants to fight me on this, yeah, right? All of the same neurobiology, all of the same neurotransmitters, all the same chemicals, all the same nerve pathways. And so if you're concerned that you might need to be concerned about your substance use pattern, please, please, please ask for an evaluation for depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions as well, because 80% of the time, that's the foundation that's underlying the development or the risk for development of an addiction or a pre-addiction. 80% of the time. Mm-hmm. 80% of people with um, substance use disorder have another mental health condition, most frequently depression, anxiety, trauma. And I've also heard, I did an episode on ADHD, and I heard that like 50% of people with ADHD have a substance use disorder or develop one, and they're five times more likely than the general population to develop a substance use disorder. That's right. And the other statistic I want to put next to that is the way we decrease the risk for a person with ADHD. So remember I said biological is not always just genetic but it's also other health conditions. This is an example of that. So anxiety increases your risk for substance use disorder, most likely alcohol or benzo. ADHD um, increases your risk of substance use disorder, usually stimulants, um, Adderall, cocaine, methamphetamine, et cetera. The number one way to reduce the risk of a person with ADHD developing a substance use disorder is to identify the ADHD as early as possible and treat it. So like my family history, I have a lot of substance use disorder on both sides, mom and dad. Um, I have alcohol use disorder on both sides, mom and dad. I have what is most likely undiagnosed ADHD on my mom's side, definitely depression and anxiety on that side. Also on my dad's side, we actually have um, psychotic disorders. And so when my son, first of all, I've been training my sons in this, like, listen, our DNA, right? So like, we have to keep this into consideration. Um, my son was six, started having some, I'll, from young, I was like, this child may have ADHD, like hyperactive, impulsive, fantastic, amazingly fun child, six years old. Um, We took him for psychological testing and psychological testing came ADHD. The number one way 
I reduce my son's already preloaded DNA risk of developing addiction is to treat that ADHD, right? And so we went like hardcore on all of the recommendations that the psychologist made. Um, one, to treat ADHD. And I told the psychologist my number one goal for treatment, like academic performance, whatever, I don't care about it. I need this not to affect his self-esteem or his love for learning. Because those would have been psychological inputs to further increase his risk of addiction, which is already stacked from our DNA, right? And so it's like this very whole person kind of way of thinking about it as the way we reduce our risk. Yeah, yeah. And as you said that, I mean, it is amazing how common some of the, you know, when you were talking about both sides of your family and this occurs on your mother's side and this is prevalent on your father's side, how common it is. And yet, you know, I know certainly with with my grandparents, nobody ever talked about it at all. Like it was like the dirty little secret that families don't share outside the walls of the home. Right. And you know what that does completely and utterly removes our power to practice prevention. Yeah. Yeah. Completely and utterly. And so like, you know, even as I was raising my kids and talking to my family, because everybody's like, oh my God, why are you talking to kids about drugs? Prevention, right? And the other the other thing we can prevent is my kids developing the mindset that people with addiction are somehow bad or inadequate or less important, right? Like that's very important because you want to train them into a compassion mindset. That is a way of practicing prevention as well. I mean, I was just realizing as you said that, that um, my sister sort of struggled with suicide attempts uh, when she was growing up. I, you know, didn't realize that I had anxiety, depression, mood disorder until God, six years ago or so. I mean, occasionally in between, but we didn't find out. Um, she had, you know, incidents in eighth grade and senior year of high school. I didn't find out till like junior year of high school that my dad's mom had committed suicide. I didn't know. I just knew she died right before they got married. I assumed it was cancer, you know, cause like that's what you assume. And. They almost never would have told me the way I found out was I was doing like a family tree for some psych class. And I was like, by the way, how'd your mom die? Because I needed to put it on the chart. And he told me and I was like, what? You know? Yeah. These dirty little secrets kill us. They, They kill us generation to generation. They kill us. Right. And like we think it's so scary. And I don't want to say we think it's so scary to talk about because like stigma actually makes it very scary to talk about um, and consequences, real consequences come um, to people and to families. But it's like if we can start breaking that, like, you know, you would never see these days you see an obituary and it says the person died by suicide or you see an obituary and it says the person died from an overdose 10 years ago. Never. Yeah, never not would every a family, family does that. Shame some, people, in the paper. some people don't share that, right? Like, it just it just depends. Um, yeah. 
So tell us about Eleanor Health and the work you do there. Eleanor is amazing. Um, So I'm co-founder and chief medical officer. We started the company back in 2019. And our mission is to help people affected by addiction live amazing lives. And so really trying to take that whole person, compassionate, humanity-based approach to people and um, what makes us different from a quote clinical perspective. So like our care model, the way we interact with folks is we take care of people at all phases of uh, the illness of addiction. And so like, you know, the way I made, I alluded earlier that if our system was better set up, we could get better outcomes. And so we've set up a better system at Eleanor and it is like right now you legit have to be stage four addiction to get help. Right. And you have to overcome the barrier of stigma and then figure out even where in this system do I get help to be able to get help. And so at Eleanor, what we do is work with insurance partners to look um, to identify people that could benefit from joining the Eleanor community. And then we do proactive outreach and just say, like, hey, we're a healthcare company. We have all kinds of things to offer. We have mental health. We have psychiatry. We have addiction support. We have nurse care managers that help with physical health conditions. We have health coaches. We have care navigators. We have peers who have their own lived recovery from addiction. Like, would any of this be helpful to you? And so a person who's drinking a bottle of wine a night doesn't quite know if they have a substance use disorder. Maybe scary to even think about that, right? Because say like, hey, yeah, can I talk to one of your coaches? Or yeah, could I talk to one of your therapists, right? Like you don't have to be like, my name's Nzinga and I'm an alcoholic to get help. And so we can come in any one of those supports and start a relationship. And we're just there to like, what what would make an amazing life for you? And then that's the context that we try to work in, in a longitudinal relationship Um, with all of those different health components. And so I love that because I totally agree with you that typically it's either you're in stage four or you're not. Right. So, well, you know, I, I've heard doctors and psychiatrists say, or therapists, well, you're not an alcoholic. And, you know, I'm like, and people are coming to you telling you they're worried about their alcohol. Like how hard is that? Right. Like, and I mean, this is why like my language, I'll always be like, let's look at the diagnostic criteria. Yeah. Stack your experience up against the 11 and we're either going to land at no diagnosis, mild, moderate or severe. And even if we land at no, we're going to start practicing prevention so that we don't land in mild moderate or severe. And you you may not know this. I know you talked about 21 million folks each year sort of in active addiction. I, I may be getting that stat wrong. But what percent of the American population would you say lands somewhere in the spectrum mild, moderate, severe? So that 21 million are those that land mild, moderate, severe. I've think um, what we really need to know is like what portion land pre-addiction, so like pre-mild, 
I don't have that statistic in my head for you. And part of the reason goes back to what you were saying earlier, which was like seven drinks a week for women and 14 drinks a week for men has been the recommendation. And that recommendation is wrong. Because like if we're in seven to 14, we're definitely in pre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And for me, that's laughable. But I mean, that I'm not. And that's like a medical recommendation. Same thing, you know, Casey, before before DSM-5, when we were in DSM-4, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, that's what we use to diagnose mental health conditions. The diagnosis literally was substance abuse. That's the medical word. Like, abuse is a crime, okay? Substance use disorder is an illness. But like literally the diagnosis that we were writing in charts that we're training every single behavioral health professional and medical professional in is abuse. So like literally driving stigma with medical diagnosis, literally cutting off our nose for prevention with seven drinks, 14 drinks. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, can you imagine, you know, the medical recommendations being um, no more than one cigarette a day for women, no more than two for men. Like it makes it seem like you should be drink, you know, smoking seven cigarettes. We're rallying ourselves up, Casey. I know. <laughs> I know. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Honestly, I, I total fangirling on you and reached out and I was like, Oh my God, she's in. That's amazing. Tell us where people can find you. So you can find Eleanor Health at eleanorhealth.com. Check us out. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram um, in Zynga MD, like medical doctor. And then you can just find me on Facebook and LinkedIn with my whole name in Zynga Harrison. Very cool. And in Zynga is spelled N-Z-I-N-G-A. But of course, I'll have all the links in the show notes to this podcast. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. And I learned so much, especially the percent recovery or remission. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for having your podcast. You're making a difference for everybody who listens. I love it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring.
I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.